0: Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Better, Better Call Daddy. Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this.
1: Oh, oh my
0: God. God. Five stars.
2: Five and a half stars.
0: Okay. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy.
2: Hey. yay. It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public.
0: <laughs> There's pluses and minuses to leveraging your money. Be careful that you don't over leverage your life. Today's guest, Mike Murrowski, has 30 years of experience in multifamily real estate investing and property management. Mike, welcome.
1: Hey, hey. How's it going? How are you? I'm better now that you're here
0: <laughs> i love it oh my goodness so when you meet somebody in person you don't really know them do you
1: no you really don't why
0: i had no idea like the depth of your story i was just like oh. wow this guy was so successful in real estate it's interesting because you talk about that how people judge you by that
1: oh yeah yeah it's pretty interesting hey here's something pretty cool though i'm interviewing dave on wednesday So that'll be kind of neat. And then I'm on his LinkedIn Live, I think, the next week. That's so
0: exciting. Shout out, Dave Meltzer.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of excited about that. So that'll be cool.
0: That's really cool. How did you guys originally connect?
1: Yeah, so uh, interesting story, Terry Ward. So I was on Terry's show and then Terry was on my show and I said, hey, I'd like to get on other shows and I really would like to get on... Ed Meltzer's and Tom Biles on impact theory. He said, well, here's the best path to entry, right? He said, Evan Carmichael, get involved with him, Dave Meltzer, here's a couple people that know Meltzer. And, and I talked to, I don't even remember who it was I talked to, but I wound up getting on the phone with Dave and I got one of his five minute calls, right? I said, Dave, listen, I know I only have five minutes and I'm going to be respectful of your time, but I have a story of me having great success. I built a $100 million company in real estate, lost it all in 2008. I went to prison. While I was in prison, I reinvented myself. I'm home doing this. He says, I'm going to be in Chicago in two weeks. We need to meet. I said, okay. So, I mean, that was like my 32nd elevator pitch, right? I figured five minutes, what the hell am I going to say in five minutes? You know, it takes me to do the whole thing, it takes 35 minutes. He never called me. He said, I'll send you an email, you know, he never sent. So it was like Monday that week, I sent an email and I said, hey Dave, you know, I never heard back from you. And he goes, oh, I'll be there Thursday. So it's like, God, I just made the window, right? So I show up in the park and I'm like, wow, oh, this is really strange. But I ask some really good questions like my buddy Carl, who I was with, he goes, man, where did those questions come from? I said, "Shit, I don't know, man. <laughs> they just What did uh, you ask? The group that was around, you know, sometimes people don't really ask good questions, right? I And I never think there's a bad question. I think everybody's at whatever level they're at, they need to learn from where they're at. But I just said, "Okay, so what can I ask him that will get his attention?" Right? I want to get his attention. The first question I asked was, "So, Dave, we were talking about the things that he talks about, the gratitude, the fear, the love. The I said, how did you figure out what people want to hear? He went into this whole thing. And then I asked him a couple other questions. And then the last question I said was, if you were going to start all over again today, what would you do to get where you're at today? He said, I'd post more. And we talked about that a little bit. And then when we were taking pictures at the end, I I leaned over and I said, hey, you know you know who I am, right? He goes, I think so. I said, I I told you this, the quick story that I went to, he goes, oh yeah. He goes, you're going to be on my show.
0: Oh, I'm so happy for you. Cause that was a goal of going, right? Yeah. All right. So now I'm going to flip those questions around on you.
1: (sighs) Okay. I don't know if you had
0: to do it all over again, what would you do?
1: I would not have gone into business with, with the guy I went into business with. I would have paid more attention to the details along the way, and I would have listened to people, specifically my wife. I believe that wives know a lot more than their husbands do. I may go to hell for this, but I believe that husbands disregard what their wives have to say because they think that they're not that smart. And I fell into that trap, but here's what I knew about my wife was that she needed security so she didn't need to know about any of the bad stuff I was afraid of that and didn't talk to her about it so what that looked like was I'm in Cincinnati in 2008 getting ready to close a deal and it was at the time it was the biggest deal we were closing a couple hundred units I'm waiting for my office to wire this five hundred thousand dollars and it's not coming and it's not coming and finally my partner gets on the phone it's like ten to five I've been waiting since 11 o'clock in the morning. And he says, I don't know how to tell you this. And I go, you don't know how to tell me what? And he said, I moved money from the escrow account into the operating account. He said, I told you, we never do that. I told you when we went into business, you never do that. I know, I know. I thought I could have had it back by now, but it didn't work out that way. I said, okay. I said, let me dry close this deal, which meant I signed all the paperwork and then I said, I'll have it funded by Tuesday. So I went home, raised some money, gave some more equity away, got it all put together and I closed the deal by Tuesday. But that was Wednesday. On Friday night that week, my wife and I go out to dinner with him and his wife. We've had these plans and we go to dinner. I never tell my wife about business, big mistake. I said, Hey, you know, we closed another deal. I met a great investor today. This guy was really interesting. This woman was really interesting. That's all I ever said, very high level, right? Cause I never wanted her to worry. So we go to dinner and on the way home from dinner, she says, I don't trust him, my partner. And so what do I do? I think I'm a good husband. And I go, don't worry about it, honey. I got this under control. I got your back. We're gonna be fine. You're safe. Everything's good. Thinking that's what she needed to hear but here's what she needed to hear. What do you mean? Tell me more. And I should have engaged in that dialogue to find out what she saw that I was missing because I wasn't paying attention to the details at this point. So a week later, I'm out to lunch with my attorney and we're leaving lunch and we're walking in the parking lot. And by this point, I've got a hundred people working for me. You know, I've built this massive company. We're walking through the park and this is my outside legal counsel. I have an inside legal counsel This is my outside legal counsel. We're walking across the parking lot. We've been friends for a long time, he and I. He puts his arm around me and he says, hey, I need to talk to you. I said, what? He said, I don't like what I'm seeing going on. He said, I think your partner's up to some stuff. You need to pay attention to it. Now, here's twice in one week that people are saying, hey, watch what's going on. And I go, Bob, don't worry, I got this. I got it under control and I didn't have shit under control. That's where it all started. Yeah, talk
0: to me about other red flags that you might
1: have noticed. I didn't pay attention to the numbers, the KPIs. I didn't see how much money was going out. I didn't see where money was going because I thought he had it under control. He was an operations guy. He worked for Jewel food stores for 20 years. He was the guy who would go into a broken store with a crew of seven. They'd fire everybody, turn the store around, re-engineer it, and go to the next store. So he was an operations guy. He got it. But something happened. You know, millions of dollars on a monthly basis coming through on rent. I think it got out of hand. Some other things, he started having an affair with a woman in the office. And I didn't know this till the end. You miss these things, right? I had my blinders on so tight that I, I lost the peripheral vision. But my blinders were like, okay, I'm focused. I'm gonna close, I'm gonna get 10,000 units. We're gonna sell this deal. And my wife and I are gonna go play golf for the next 20 years. That was the plan. And I made $15 million in 30 months. I sold residential real estate. I sold hundreds of houses a year. 2005, I went into the apartment business. In 30 months, I raised $18 million, bought $60 million worth of real estate. It was 4,000 apartments in five states. I built a property management company managing 7,500 units. My pride, my ego got in the way. I didn't pay attention to the details or the red flags. Red flags like, hey, don't buy that deal. And I, my ego said, well, we're going to buy that deal. It's a trophy, and I want it. And the numbers didn't work. And my analyst took me in a room and said, you buy that deal, I'm quitting. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that went on.
0: Did you buy that deal?
1: No. I said, well, you know, I said, if you feel that strong about it, show me why. And so that just happened to be one of those things. But I, you know, there were things I listened to, of course, but those red flags, though, that I didn't pay attention to. So that happened in 2008, just before I'm having lunch with my CFO and the news happened to be on. We're watching the news and they're carrying boxes out of Lehman Brothers by by the dozens and I looked across the table and, and I said, Man, we're screwed, aren't we? He said, Yeah, we're in big trouble. So we knew it's like in 2005, I saw the market softening and I went into the apartment business thinking, Man, food, shelter, clothing, be in shelter, right? Apartments, people are going to need a place to live. Even if they lose their house, even if they have to move out of their house, they're going to need a place to live. Apartments went down the dumper too. People moved out because people couldn't afford it. So people doubled up, tripled up. They went home with their parents. Occupancies dropped and when occupancies dropped my cash flow dropped and when my cash flow dropped I couldn't pay my bills. And I couldn't pay my investors, so I started to move money between companies to keep my investors safe right and here's what I tell people I never flew private I didn't buy a big house I didn't have a big car I was the neighborhood baseball coach, I was home every night for dinner. My wife and I had a great marriage. We were best friends. Her girlfriends hated me because their marriages were awful. And my wife would laugh. She'd go, God, I'm so lucky. And got ripped from that to live in a 12 by 12 room with three men that I didn't know or didn't like. And I had three green outfits and five pairs of underpants wondering what the heck happened to my life. I'm in prison for 17 days thinking my wife and I are intact. And she tells me she's divorcing me and moving on. So it wrecked me. Oh, my I mean, God. It absolutely ruined me because, um, hey, I was in love. We had, Like I said, we were best friends. Now, the last couple of years were, were stressed. The last year was really stressful. We knew I was going to go to prison. We didn't know for how long. I was running around trying to build a business so that financially her and the kids would be okay and be able to stay in the house. We didn't know how long I was going to go to prison for. Hey, when we found out, I went, I, I got sentenced to 10 years and my ex-partner got sentenced to 42 months.
0: How did that happen?
1: So in 2010, I was on vacation and I come back from vacation and he hands me two business cards. He says, you need to go find a criminal attorney. I said, a criminal attorney. He said, yeah. I said, I knew we were in financial trouble, but criminal. He goes, yeah, I can't talk to you anymore. He You can't talk to me anymore. What do you mean? You can't talk to me anymore. Your partner, this is our business. You know, I did this for you as a favor, brought you on as my partner. What happened? I wound up going and seeing an attorney, and the attorney said, Oh, don't worry about it, you're fine, nothing's going to happen. So, this is in August of 2010. In May of 2011, I get indicted, and I find out that he had gone and testified at the grand jury in August while I was on vacation to cut a deal that he'd get less time, they'd throw me under the bus. Our in-house legal counsel wouldn't get charged and neither would our director of finance. And that was the deal they cut. They threw me under the bus. Now, listen, I broke the law. I I got indicted on wire fraud and mail fraud charges because I didn't disclose to my investors the movement of money. But I went to my investors and said, hey, you know what, I think that we can ride this storm out if we move money back and forth. And my whole thought behind that was, you know, I've been involved in recessions in the past. They last 17 or 18 months. There's a 10 or 12% correction in the market. This thing lasted seven or eight years with a 40% correction. People are still stunned by it today, right? I thought, you know, we can weather this storm. My accountant, my attorney both said, yeah, you can move money, leave a paper trail behind it. That's not breaking the law. What's breaking the law is I didn't tell my investors. So if I had to come to you, Renia, and said, Hey, I think if we move money back and forth, we can keep the ship afloat. You know, the market will change. We'll put the money back. You'd have said, Okay. Or you'd have said, No. And either way, I'd have just done what my investor said to do. That didn't happen. So, you know, I, I talk about five mistakes that I learned along the way. I grew way too fast, very unstable. I should have stabilized properties before we went and bought the next one. 2007. I closed 17 deals for 2,700 units. We didn't have time to breathe. I was undercapitalized. I didn't raise enough money from my investors. I was over leveraged. I was 85% loan to value on $60 million worth of real estate. I don't know who was worse, the banks for giving it to me or me taking it. Because you shouldn't be, you know, today I'm underwriting deals at 65% loan to value and telling my investors, hey, you're not gonna see a mid or upper teens return. You're not. You're gonna weather the storm. We're gonna get prepared for it today. It's gonna hit in two years, and when it hits, we're gonna be in a great position because we pre-planned for it this time. Last time we didn't pre-plan for it. I ran into it full steam ahead. I, say, I always say I had my, my eyes wide shut. That's pretty much the story.
0: Another thing I heard you say is that no one talks about how to get out of a deal.
1: Okay, so I wrote a book called Exit Plan. I wrote it because I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years in coaching and training, books and tapes, seminars. And everybody teaches us how to find a deal, buy a deal, operate a deal. Nobody teaches us how to get out. Nobody teaches you how to maximize your profit or the ways to maximize your profit or the best place to maximize your profit. So I teach that to people in the the book. And, And that's one of the things that I teach people. So in my coaching and training platform. So here's what happened. I go to prison. My wife divorces me, right? 17 days in, I'm shipwrecked. I'm walking around and I'm wondering, how am I going to get through today, much less 10 years of this, right? And it was like, you ever been somewhere and you want to leave really bad, but you can't, or somebody you're with, Like I've gone to parties with my wife and she'll say, I really want to go. I'll say, let's go. She goes, no, we can't. It's like you're trapped, right? Social
0: niceties.
1: Yeah. It's a social nightmare is what it is. But that's how it is in prison is you can't leave. And it's right there. I mean, you could just walk up to the fence, go through the gate and leave. You could, but you don't, right? So I'm in prison about six weeks. I'm a mess. I mean, the joke was take his shoelaces because he's probably going to hurt himself. I walk into gym one day, and I always pre-qualify this part of the story because I was just window shopping. I wasn't going to buy anything. I had gone from running marathons to being 35 pounds overweight and absolutely hating myself. So I walk into gym. This guy walks up to me. Now, we all have these defining moments in our life, right? This guy walks up to me, and he goes, hey, get over it. Get over what? He goes, get over over this shit. He said, all these people want to do is beat you. They can take your real estate, they can take your house, they can take your business, they can destroy your family, but they can't take what you're made of. They can't take who you are at the core. You could get that 10 years back. He said, come to this gym every day, start taking my class, you'll start losing weight, you'll start feeling better. He said, your life will start to change. He goes, you can put it all back together. The choice is yours. And he walked away. And it was like somebody slapped me in the face.
0: That really stayed with you.
1: Yeah. So I start going to the gym every day and I start taking this kid's class. And I say kid because he's about 25 years younger than me. I start working out. I start losing weight. I start feeling better. I wound up going to college. I got a bachelor's degree in theology. I wrote two books Exit Plan is one, another one on property management. I wrote an ethics course. I taught real estate investing, property management, and ethics for six years in prison. How ironic a federal inmate teaching ethics, right? I love it though, and I was on an outreach program. I went into the community. I told my story 40 times to local business owners. I taught Bible study for six years. I was on an outreach program. During that time, I met a professor from the University of Minnesota. We co-authored a paper together, an ethics paper that got published this year in the Business Journal of Ethics, and it gets taught at the collegiate level for forensic accounting and sales and marketing classes. So I really re-engineered myself. I came home today. You know, I came home the week they closed the world down for the pandemic. So seven years and 10 months I was gone. I came home, I pretty much hit the ground running because I had all this stuff I had put together while I was gone, uh, but really started to build my business in like June of 20. But I'm in the coaching and training space. I teach people how to buy and operate multifamily, but more importantly, how to live a balanced lifestyle. Because I think that people get so out of balance and then things come into play like pride and ego and self-centeredness and the stuff that, that causes you to, to think differently. And that's what I try to help people not do. Recently, I was just approved by the SEC to go back and do deals so I can be an issuer and a sponsor. I currently putting deals together. We're raising capital for a deal we're doing in in Florida. It's interesting how the whole thing's flipped around. Now, not everything's perfect, right? I'm still divorced. My wife and I are friendly and more so for the kids, or my ex-wife, I should say. I have five children. I have two I haven't talked to in years. One I haven't talked to in about eight years. And the older one, when I came home from prison, she and I started to build a relationship and then all of a sudden something happened and she decided not to talk to me anymore. And now their mom really polluted the well, right? Just kind of a tough deal.
0: What you know, happened?
1: Just, what happened was Emma, my older one, she's 24, her and I were hanging out and her sister and her mom were mad, didn't want her hanging out with me. Emma comes to me one day and says, hey, um, I'm going to take this job in, Cal- in North Carolina she's trying to get a job. She graduated college as a teacher, third grade teacher. She, her dream job and couldn't get a job here. So on a whim, she filled out these applications, got a job in North Carolina and said, she's moving. So great. So, you know, I took her to the store, helped her buy some, some stuff she'd need, you know, pots and pans and dishes and gave her money to travel. And, you know, we were fine. She went there. We're still communicating. We're talking to her three times a week. She's got me And here's how I knew she was starting to trust me. She came and she said, hey, dad, would you read the lease for me? I said, absolutely. And I knew at that point that she was really starting to trust me. Well, my ex-wife was sending me, you know, I was getting mail at the house still all this time, right? And she starts sending me all this mail that I'm getting. And there was a bank account that I forgot I had, but it was a 529 for Emma's sister, Lily, and it had $1,300 in it. I cash the account in and send Lily a check. Emma stops talking to me. So finally I get their mom on the phone and I go, what happened here? She goes, well, what'd you expect? She goes, you sent Lily $1,300 and didn't send Emma anything. I said, whoa, whoa, time out here. I said, it wasn't my money. Wasn't Emma's money. It was Lily's money. It was in a, oh yeah, yeah. It's always all about you, isn't it? I said, hey, hang on here. I said, that was lily's college money that was a 529 account we started you know you've always got an excuse for everything she says and hung up on me and nobody will talk to me it's the craziest thing but you know you know she said because i sent lily this money and i didn't send emma anything i said you know that's funny i said did emma tell you that you know i gave her like 700 dollars between taking her to the store and get she goes no i said well i said i don't know what's going on so So I write them all the time. I call uh, Emma every week, leave her a message. She never returns my call. You know, I don't even know if she gets it, but it's heartbreaking. Um, My relationship with my younger kids who were five and six when I left today are 16 and 14 is good. And then I have an older daughter that lives in Texas with a couple grandkids and her husband, they've been married for about 18 years and-
0: Wow, uh, when you went to prison, what was their reaction? I mean, oh my god.
1: Well, everybody was a wreck. It destroyed, you know, I mean, it it was a wreck. It was terrible.
0: Did anybody visit you there? Like what was your relationship like with your family there?
1: My wife came with the kids, a neighbor and one of the older daughters one time after that told me she was divorcing me. Then came a couple times a year with the young kids for about Three years and then uh, came once after that and never again. So, the last two and a half years I was gone, I didn't see my kids. Hard to get a hold of them on the phone. You know, and I'm not gonna, I won't talk about her at all, but you know, it was tough. It was tough to watch, it was tough to listen to. My kids experienced things that they shouldn't have experienced, namely, me going to prison. I think I just can't
0: imagine from like going and being like best friends with your wife and having your kids around every single day to just that completely going away and having so little contact and having to like navigate a divorce from prison.
1: Yeah, you can't, I mean, you have zero rights in prison, so you're not allowed to, And, and listen, so for me, it was all about making sure they were okay. I left. So I got indicted. So let me back up. I just want to tell this one thing. So that guy who told me when I walked in the gym that day, don't let these people beat you. He forgot all about it. About a year ago, we're on Facebook and he comes up and, and he's he said something that was like, man, this guy's not doing well. He's having a bad day. So I reached out and I said, hey, Kirk, I don't know if you remember, but I was in prison about six weeks and, and you said this to me and And he messengered me back and said, man, you don't know how bad I needed to hear that that happened for you and that I helped you. He goes, I just needed to know that I did something good for somebody somewhere along the way today and you showed up. You know, it was like I was able, that whole cycle just got paid back to him, right? And made an impact in his life. That's what I wanna do today is I wanna make an impact in people's lives, right? I wanna help people Realize their potential, who they are, what they can go do. The day I got indicted, my wife and I get in the car and I said, hey, I said, I'm going to go to prison. There's no fighting the federal system. They have a 97% conviction rate because 98% of the 97% plead guilty because they do things like this. I'm sitting with the prosecutor and the FBI agents and and I said, we're going to go to trial. We're not going to trial, he says. I said, you can't dictate that. I said, we're going to go to trial. He goes, look, you don't have the money to go to trial. I said, you know what? I'm due proper cause by the court. I get a federal defender. We're going to trial. He closes his book, and here's what he said. They shut the tape recorder off. He closes his book, and he goes, you go to trial, or say you're going to trial one more time, and I'm going to indict your wife. I said, indict my wife for what? I said, she didn't know a thing. He goes, that doesn't matter. I will indict your wife. And this guy's a judge today. So they don't play di- They don't play fair. It's dirty, the federal system. I can't speak about the state system, but the federal system is, is broken. I get in the car after being indicted and I look at my wife and I go, look, we have two choices. I said, I can give you an envelope with some money in it and you're going to burn through it in a couple of years from now. You'll have to go get a job. I said, or I can build a business that you can run keep you and the kids in the house. You can work from home. And when I come home, we'll build it out. We'll sell it and go. Let's do that. So we're both in real estate. She was in real estate for years. She's licensed. And I went and built another property management company that she still runs and operates today. So I left her in a pretty good position. I left her with a business, a lot of cash and, you know, um, some investment properties that she was able to sell off over the years. And she did well. Uh, That's a blessing. Yeah, I kept her and the kids in the house, and she'll never admit it, but I know I did well, so.
0: Yeah. That's really great.
1: He, here's the thing, it's my second marriage. I got divorced from my first wife, and I swore I was never getting married again. No more kids. I was I was gonna be the best dad, the best dad you could possibly be. I would pick my kids up on Wednesday. I'd have them Wednesday and Thursday. I'd pick them up every weekend, because their mom said it was okay. I had them all weekend. I, I'd have them four to five days a week. We were great, right? Well, I was divorced probably three, a little over three years and met my second wife. At first it it was a challenge. Somebody put me up to a challenge and I took the challenge and fell in love. And it was crazy. I was just, what's the expression over the moon? (laughs) Stupid expression, right? But I was. You know, we wound up having a couple miracle babies because I had to be repaired. We were Ken and Barbie. We had a great marriage. We were best friends. Her girlfriends hated me. One of the things we would do, and this was a practice in our house was on Sundays, no phones, no computers all day long, a little bit of TV, but we hung out as a family. We go to church, we go hang out. We, you know, I mean, that was just our practice. Well, a couple of our girlfriends really didn't like that. And they would call and they would call the house, like one, one, I'll never forget one night we were sitting at dinner and the house phones ringing and ringing and ringing and, and ringing and somebody would hang up and call back. And, and she looked at me, she said, I gotta answer it. I said, answer it. I said, it's, I said, it's a joke at this point. I hope nobody, I hope everything's okay. You know, it was one of her girlfriends said, see, I knew you'd answer. I mean, it was just, just that spiteful kind of, and comments like, oh, you guys are together again. Jeez. So, you know, it's just kind of funny when I think back about it, because, you know, girlfriends didn't have the best marriage and there's a lot of unhappiness in this world. And I think it stems from a lot of things. But I think that people just there's no relationship. I think people need to communicate. I want to be in a relationship with somebody that can look them in the eye and have a conversation with them sit on the couch, hold my hand and be friends. Right. I think that that's where it has to start. That's where it started with us. And, you know, it's funny because today I'm over it. Right. I mean, seven years I was in prison and I was like, God, why did this happen? How would this happen? You know, I want my marriage back. I wish my wife was, you know, not so such a wreck. And then I got to about a little over seven years and being in prison. And then all of a sudden, it was like I started to change. I was like, maybe I don't want that. And it had been a long seven years. I mean, if I told you about some of the things that had happened.
0: I really want to know about what
1: happened.
0: Like, what was the turning point at seven years?
1: I think I just decided, you know, hey, I'm going home. I'm going home, and I have this whiteboard, and it's all white. There's no lines on it, and there's Mm -hmm. no name cleaned off, and it's perfectly white. And I get to design my future now. I think that that's what the turning point was. And here, I'll tell you a funny story, though. So, Our daughter's an avid golfer and she was in a tournament, you know, one of the last tournaments. uh, This is probably back in August. Me and her mom are riding a golf cart all afternoon together. I mean, we get along and she gets on the phone with somebody. I think it was her boyfriend's mom. She got off the phone. The first thought that went through my mind was, I am so glad I'm not married to you. So glad because I know what that whole situation's like. I know how you can get. And she hung up the phone and, and it was like the first time I just went, man, I am so glad that we can be friends and I don't have to be in a relationship with you.
0: What other lessons did you get from prison?
1: Not to let your past define you, can't let your past define you. I mean, I think there's so many people that are in prison in their mind, addiction, weight, divorce, mental illness, depression. I think there's other ways to deal with it, right? Here's one of the big things for me is, I've seen a lot and been through a lot now. And and I've always been kind of a street guy. You know, I grew up in Chicago, right? My dad was a street guy. My dad showed me things, taught me things that most teenagers don't get, you know? I mean, common sense, street smart stuff. So I knew a lot. And then I'd been in the real estate business, the property management business, done a lot of things in neighborhoods that most people don't go into. Had a lot of dealings with people most people don't have dealings with. But then I went to prison and it was like a whole totally eye-opening situation, right? Well, wow, how do you mitigate this? And, and you live in a room with, with three other men that are like, really? You're kidding me, right? How do you live like this and your wife lets you come home? I would just shake my head sometimes, right, at some of these guys. But you learn is your opinion doesn't matter nobody cares what you think. In the beginning, I thought people would care what I thought. People don't care what you think. And and they let you know, hey, I don't care what you think, right? And you know what else I got from that is I don't care what anybody else thinks.
0: Was there anything that like frustrated you or like people's habits or anything?
1: You know, the guys that don't take a shower for days on end, You kind of, after you've been there a while, you kind of seek people out that you say, oh, I want you, I want to be your, your celly. Probably after the first year, I found a couple of guys that were really clean and we bunked together for about three years. One guy was so OCD, he mopped, waxed and buffed the floor every day. And so the room was really clean. We were clean. Prison's very loud and very bright. When you go to sleep at night, you really never sleep. I mean, you're, you hear things and things go on that you go, oh, God, I, you know, can't even imagine, right? You see things, experience things that are different. You certainly don't experience them on the Gold Coast. I lived a very modest lifestyle. I mean, like I said, I never flew private. I didn't have a boat, a big house, and uh, we took a nice vacation every year and I took my wife on business trips with me. So I would go to California for a long weekend. She'd come with, we'd bring the kids. And the newspaper said this too, that we owned uh seasoned White Sox tickets. The media always blows things out of proportion. I think, you know, a couple of weeks ago I did a podcast and it was a very large meetup and there was about 135 people on it. And I tell my story and and talk about some other you know, operations about multifamily and the real estate business. And um, the next day, I get a, an email from the woman who hosted the group, and she said, Hey, listen, one of your old investors was on the call last night. I feel like I need to forward the email to you. So she forwarded me the email, and it was like, Oh, I can't believe you had him on the call. He's a scammer. I think your people need to know about that. I said, Okay. It took a few days to think about this. Is the other thing I learned in prison don't respond right away walk away, walk away, take 24 hours, take a deep breath, think about it, then go back and respond. And, and that's still not right. Then rewrite it again. And then respond. I waited a couple days and I responded. And she said, you know, I don't want an apology from you. No apology will ever do what you did or take care of what you did. And, and I sent her back an, an email and I just said, Hey, you know, I am so sorry. I can't even begin to understand what you went through and I can't imagine what your life's been like as a result of this. And I said, I know you don't want to hear, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. Then she had asked me some questions about my ex-partner and about how we were going to pay her back. And and in the email, I said, well, I haven't talked to my ex-partner since 2010. We were forbidden to communicate. I understand that this is where he is and what he's doing right now, but I don't know for sure. And then I said, as far as paying back i said we're court ordered you know we're ordered by the court to pay restitution i said i'm hopeful that you've gotten some money along the way because some deals have sold and i know investors have gotten money back and and i've paid money and and she sends me back this email like just like a dagger through my heart right and she's like you are so full of shit. she goes i am so sick of you lying she goes I can't believe that you're trying to tell me that you send money to the government because I've never gotten anything. She goes, and then she says, and you, I can't even believe that you were ever in jail. She said, I don't believe you were in prison. And I don't remember how exactly she put it. And I just, you know, so I have this mentality today that your opinion is, is your opinion and it's none of my business. I don't care. Not because of anything other than the fact that I got to go in this direction and I have to rebuild my life and I can't do it if I listen to you, right? Because most of the time it's, you know, Zig Ziglar used to have this thing where he he would say, you know, if you put a bucket of crabs in the middle of the floor, one of those crabs is going to try and climb out of the bucket. And just as he gets to the top, everybody else is going to try and pull him back down because no crabs want anybody getting ahead. And the analogy behind that is, I don't need to care. I don't care what the other crabs think. So. so I just leave it. And about a week later, I get an email back from her. I'm so surprised you haven't. And I could tell by this time she had calmed down a little bit. I'm surprised you haven't contacted me. And so I said, listen, I said, I'm more than willing to get on a phone call with you, but I'm not going to do this by writing anymore. I don't want to put anything that could be detrimental or, you know, she gets on the phone and the first question I say is, you're not recording this, are you? And she said, she goes, no, I don't have that kind of technology. Or I said, okay, great. So we talked through it, but she had no idea I went to prison. She got one payment for like $9 in 2010 and never heard from the government again. So she fell between the cracks. She said, what do I do? I said, well, I think the only thing you can do is call your local FBI agent office and tell them what's going on and see what they can do for you. Because I know that deal you were in got sold and you should have got some money.
0: I would love to know just a little bit about your relationship with God.
1: So I have a intimate relationship with Jesus. I went to prison, I was a Christian. I've got. i I've been a Christian since 1983, but I was always a casual Christian. So as one of these guys I pulled God out of my pocket when I was in trouble. He helped me out of this jam. You know, like when the flashing red lights are behind you and, and then as soon as you pull away, you put both hands back on the steering wheel and go, I got this baby, put God back in my pocket. And I did that for 30 years. I'm recovering. So I had been sober for 26 years, 12-step program. I thought I had my act together. Great marriage, you know, best friends with my wife. Kids, we had a blast. We took a, you know, a nice family vacation every year and a couple trips here and there. And, you know, spent summers at the pool by the house. And I was a family guy. My kids grew up in church. They're all Christian. And I went to prison and I realized God wanted to get my attention. So I realized that when I went to prison that God made it really clear that, hey, this time you're not putting me back in your pocket. This time you are gonna pay attention to what I have to say. I did, I I listened, I listened intensely. And I went to school for four years, I studied, got a bachelor's degree, graduated with honors and I'd never gone to college. I read a thousand business books over the years. I read 400 books in prison. Some of the best books that I've read have been Christian books about marriage and relationships. I made some mistakes as a husband. I made some mistakes as a father. I think I know what those were. It's just like I told you, my wife probably wanted me to say, hey, tell me more about that rather than I got this under control and blow her up, right? I'm thinking she wants security and just knows she's safe. I'm trying to make her feel safe. When really, she probably wanted to really give me what she was thinking. How many times as a husband do you show up, and you can't answer this, but um, maybe your dad could, but um, how many times as a husband do you show up and go, I'm home physically, but emotionally, I'm not here. I would pull up in a driveway trying to end a phone call, and my kids are, dad, 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 come on. And my wife's standing in the doorway like this, come on in for dinner. Here, one of the first apartment deals I'm closing. This is just before the world ended in two thousand and eight, or actually two thousand and seven. So one of the big banks in Chicago—I don't know if you remember—Jones Lang LaSalle. Yeah. I've got a loan commitment. This is a Friday afternoon. I'm coming home. My wife and I are going to go to dinner. Pulling in the driveway at five o'clock, my phone rings. It's my loan broker with the vice president of LaSalle Bank, and they're—they're t- they're going to proceed to tell me that they can't close the loan on Monday morning, and I am like beside myself. I'm like, oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, we're not. I said, I have a loan commitment. You're going to close this loan. We can't. Yes, you can. You're going to. Three hours, I'm on the phone. Two of those three hours, I sit in the car with my wife standing in the window. I'm home physically, but not emotionally, mm-hmm. right? I would never do that again today, by the way. I would never do something like that again today. I, I would make sure that, I, I, you yeah, know, I wouldn't pull in the driveway on the phone. I mean, there's just things I wouldn't do.
0: Yeah, that's that's a big lesson. I definitely think that a lot of people can relate to that now. I think that that's a good piece of advice. Did you help anybody spiritually in prison?
1: Yes. Funny you ask that because I just was telling somebody this story today. There was a guy, he was a pretty high ranking gang member in one of the street gangs in St. Louis. And the night before he left to come home, he said, he said, man, if I would have known I could have made this much money selling real estate, I had never sold drugs there's a guy in chicago here there's actually three or four but two guys come to mind in chicago here right now that one guy done a number of deconversions on two flats so he buys two flats deconverts them to single families makes some gorgeous moves resells them Another guy takes the top off of bungalows and puts a second story on them. These are guys that didn't do real estate before, but they took my class for two years and learned. And there's a couple other guys that are doing, and I talk to guys all the time that are doing real estate a little bit here and there. And some guys that, you know, you really helped them change their life business-wise, but spiritually. So I came home from prison. I was home for about two weeks and I'm in the halfway house and I'm walking around and I'm like, okay, God, what are we doing here? What do you want me to do? This is, we got to fix this. He says, well, you're going to start a Bible study. I said, okay, God, let's have another conversation, right? This isn't going to work like this. And he goes, no, you're going to start a Bible study. So pandemic, lockdown, Zoom, should have bought Zoom stock, right? I start a Bible study on Zoom and it's still running today, you know got some guys that I was in prison with some prison ministry guys some old friends some people I know and boy we've built a solid small group a solid group of guys that come together when somebody needs something and love each other and get together on Friday morning at 6:30 and start the day and it's it's good stuff do you have
0: any favorite passages
1: Corinthians 1 13 the love passage you know love is patient love is kind. Does that boast? Does that envy? Does that grovel? Here's the big message. And, and I don't do this on a lot of shows. There's been a couple shows that I've been on that have been about marriage and, and yours and and family and, and stuff like that. Hey guys, pay attention to your wife. That's a big message. I was on a show the other day. I wish I could remember the name of it now. Um, it was a family oriented show and it was husband's It was a divorce deal. That's what it was. It was a divorce show. We got talking about divorce and my divorce. And I said, look, I said, men don't pay attention to their wife. They want you to pay attention to them. Whether they're mad, they're upset, they're angry, they're going through a change of life. They want to know that you love them and figure out what that love language is and give it to them and pay attention. Men chase their woman to conquer them. And once you conquer them, you think the battle's over. When the battle's not over, you should always continue to explore who she is because she always changes.
0: My daddy is definitely gonna have something to say about that. (laughs) Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad?
1: How this works with you and him and what your guy's mission is. All right. Perfect, I can't wait.
0: Mike, this has been such a pleasure.
1: If people want to get a hold of me, I'm very accessible. I love to network. I love to meet people and have conversations. Call me, email me. You know, I'm Mike at mycoreintentions.com. Wherever somebody hangs out on social media, I'm there. So personally and business wise, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you know, like me, love me, follow me, subscribe. I hope to give you relevant content when it comes to real estate and uh, building a business, either passively or actively. So
0: you better send me that David Meltzer episode too. I can't wait to hear it.
1: Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to do it. I'll make sure you get both of them too. So,
0: oh, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, it's a great opportunity. So
0: have a beautiful night.
1: You too. Thanks. Bye.
0: Now, Let's switch it over to Grandpa. What did you think about Mike's episode and over-leveraging?
2: I think that's exactly what the subject matter is all about in this episode, is the highs and lows of over-leveraging money. And it can happen in the stock market. It can happen in gambling. It certainly happens in the banking industry, insurance industry, and certainly in the real estate game. And when it, you're riding high, you can win for two, three, four, five years in a row. And you're just bringing in plenty of money and giving money to your investors. But if things sour and things can reverse or go bad and you're leveraged a 10 or 15 percent drop riding out that storm, maybe. But sometimes things can happen where things can go down very, very quickly when things go the wrong way. And you can get wiped out. That's what happened to a lot of people in 2008. And I certainly experienced some highs and lows, as you know, but many other people too. And when you're winning all the time, you think you have everything under control. You think everything that you touch turns to gold. You just don't see that it's even possible that you can even lose because you have the skill set where you have wins after wins after wins and after wins. And then you add on and add on and it's winning and winning and winning where it can just bite you where you just least expect it. And then all of a sudden you're bleeding and you think that you can ride it out and you drown. So it's much better to hedge your positions and to play a little bit more conservatively. Even if you're hedging positions, you still got to be careful not to over leverage to the point where where you're chasing money, where it actually It's like the Pied Piper, where it's just playing a song and music and where you could be just taken away. So we have to always have a little humility and we have to be able to have the respect that we are not God ourselves. And uh, when we think that we know it all and can do it all and win it all, we're very vulnerable to a big, big fall. Mm.
0: Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash Daddy. Add Better Call Daddy podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.